I know many of you are surprised to see me here. It's a bit surprising to me myself, but I'm glad to be here, and I'm certainly glad that you're here. The last two Sundays, Easter and the combined service of confirmation, were grand and glorious. I knew I was getting old when I realized I had known the great-grandparents of about a third of the confirmation class. <laughs> I retired as senior minister in 1990. That means I need to say hello to any of you who have joined the church in the last quarter of a century. <laughs> Many years ago, I was preaching in a little country church, and the crowd was terrible. And I said to the young minister, where is everybody? Didn't you tell him I was coming? He said, no, sir. I didn't tell him. I don't know how they found out. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here, the ones who didn't find out. And I'm very grateful to Dr. Sims for the invitation to preach at Dolphin Way. To occupy this pulpit is always a joy and a privilege and a responsibility. It's an honor to share the service with Dr. Sims. Dolphin Way is blessed by his ministry, as well as that of Sheila Bates and Wood and Lisenby and, of course, Kathy Jorgensen. We are a church most fortunate. This church has been the central and critical focus of the entire second half of my life. Not just the buildings, beautiful and meaningful as they are to me, but especially the people who have been my friends, my inspiration, and in many ways my, my reason for living. More powerful and more mysterious than all that, the Church is the body of Christ containing all the same challenges and opportunities for us to witness to God as if Christ himself were physically present. G.K. Chesterton wrote that if we all fell dead suddenly, the church would somehow exist in God. That's amazing. And yet the body of Christ is not dependent on our existence, it was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so the church, the body of Christ, is something more powerful and more divine than we may have thought. It is unfortunate, it seems to me, that so many Christians spend six weeks of Lent examining the crucifixion and then only one great Sunday celebrating the resurrection. The Easter season is a period of 50 days from Easter to Pentecost Sunday. Today is the third Sunday of Easter. The resurrection is over. The crowds have diminished. The excitement has abated. And while we may not still be celebrating, we should still be reflecting on what it all means. Surely we are still trying to assess any connection between the Master's victory over death and our own struggle with life. 
In the same regard, it's been difficult to me to understand a certain restraint in the biblical story, a certain economy of emotion. Remember the scene. The resurrection was over. It was the evening of the third day. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among the disciples. He said, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. It was unbelievable. It was astounding. I expected the disciples to be in a frenzy of delight, pure ecstasy. But to my surprise, there's some reticence in their response. The King James simply says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What's happening here? The miracle of miracles labeled with faint praise. Well, actually, no one could immediately assimilate such an unbelievable reality. What was happening was that the impact of this tremendous truth took some time to be realized. The friends of Jesus had suffered a severe shock over his crucifixion and his death. Human hopes were once again executed on the cross of reality. Life in this world simply made no sense. And then suddenly, in the midst of their pain and disappointment, Jesus appeared. It was almost too much. Helmut Tillich said it was like specific sensory energy. That's the way sensory organs react to outward stimuli. For example, somebody strikes you on the head and your ears ring and you see stars. But what happened had nothing to do with church bells or heavenly bodies. What Tillich means is that those who experience the resurrection were confronted by a reality that exceeded their capacity to understand. The normal human functions were overtaxed. Luke says it very well. In their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. Remember how devastated Paul was when he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. For three days... He was without sight and took neither food nor drink. Upon his recovery, he went to Arabia to try to assimilate what had happened. Three years later, he went to Jerusalem to talk with James, the brother of Christ. Finally, many years after all of that, Paul was lyric about the resurrection. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Faith takes time. Faith requires reflection. After a while the disciples began to reason 
If Jesus could say to a lifeless young man, I say to thee, arise, and the young man actually arose, then Jesus must be stronger than death. And in the same way they reasoned, if Jesus could say, thy sins be forgiven, then he must be someone who lives beyond our common humanity. Indeed, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But when their understanding deepened and their faith expanded and their joy increased, it increased dramatically. It's true for us for, as well. We must discover for ourselves the risen Christ and experience the resurrected Lord. But in time, that stunning joy will deepen in intensity according to the faithfulness of Christ. Some people wish that they had lived in those apostolic days and been a witness to the resurrection. However, it may be our good fortune to live removed from those events. Today we have a far more comprehensive view of the meaning of the resurrection than those early disciples could possibly have obtained from that dramatic appearance of Christ. One thing that the disciples did understand, and we must understand as well, is that believing in the resurrection provides a meaning to our existence. It is so remarkable that the same God who died to forgive our sins lives to guide our lives. When the living of our days and the work of our hands are offered in gratitude to God, our joy will be great. And then our prayer will be, go with us, God, and guide the way through this and every coming day that by thy spirit strong and true our lives may be our gift to you. Most people are too busy making ends meet, just living from day to day, to struggle with life's meaning. For them, the purpose of life lies dormant, unmeasured, and unrealized. And there are some who carefully and deliberately choose their personal priorities, security, wealth, power, family prominence, truth and justice, service to others, science and learning. The tragedy is that all human life and all human achievement are terminal. Time and death eviscerate all of our accomplishments. History and literature have long echoed the cry, Oh God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. I believe that all good work should be honored and valued. But I have the feeling that when our efforts are unselfish, 
and when they are a gift to God, simply loving others because God loved us, then the purity and the essence of that work becomes something more. A house not built with hands, eternal in the heavens. I was fascinated by Yuval Harari's book, Homodius. He said, despite the astonishing things that human beings are capable of doing, we remain unsure of our goals and seem to be discontented as ever. We have advanced from canoes to galleys to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody seems to know where we're going. We're more powerful than ever, but have very little idea of what to do with all that power. Still worse, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company. We are accountable to nobody, never finding satisfaction. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who do not know what they want? Life without meaning, life without God's meaning, is both dangerous and unrewarding. Hopelessness is widespread. Dissatisfaction is prevalent. Anxiety and addiction are the marks of our age. W.H. Auden wrote a book-length poem dealing with the human quest to find essence and identity, especially in a world of increasing technology. The poem was called The Age of Anxiety. It gathered some of the worst reviews Auden ever received. They said it was his one book, his one failure. However, it won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry and it inspired a symphony by Leonard Bernstein and a ballet by Jerome Robbins. One of the characters in the poem, Rosetta, was disturbed by the fact that the God of Israel never wavers in his judgment. And in her anxiety, she modified one of the Hebrew poems. She said, Though I fly through Wall Street, or Publishers Row, or pass out, or submerge in music, or marry well, marooned in riches, he'll be right there with his eye upon me. Should I hide away, hide away my secrets in consulting rooms, my fears are ever before him. He'll find all. He'll ignore nothing. Any age is an anxious age that is aware of God and unaware of God's mercy and God's love. Perhaps we should have known God's love and grace just by living in this delicate universe. Pierre de Chardin, the French priest, philosopher, paleontologist, geologist, said by means of all created things without exception, 
the divine assails us, penetrates us, molds us. We imagined it as distant and inaccessible, whereas in fact we live steeped in its burning layers. Of course the divine surrounds us. But just by observing this world, we do not learn that God's nature and God's name is love. The natural world fails to reveal a personal God. It is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that God is seen, vindicating the love for which Christ died, ratifying righteousness and justice against the powers of evil, announcing his determination to make Jesus Christ the Lord of all. I believe the desire for life's meaning is universal. That resurrection is essential to that search. Resurrection is the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. Augustine said, Christ became as we are, that we might become as he is. In Christ... Life has meaning. In Christ, we live with sure and certain hope. We know there is goodness beyond evil and life beyond death. And in resurrection, our joy is full. If you had to choose one word to gather up and focus and express the very essence of Christianity, the very essence of New Testament faith, resurrection would be that word. The resurrection of Christ validates our deepest yearnings. We are formed in God's own image with the power to love and to create and to believe. These aspirations are deep hungers within the human nature. They are spiritual cravings that require nourishment just as our bodies require food and drink. Surely, surely, the Creator who keeps faith with the appetites of our bodies would not play false with the hungers of our souls. No, He will not. God is faithful, and His promises have been proven by the resurrection. So, of course, Christians rejoice. Jesus promised, I will come to you, and He came. He promised peace, and peace was given. He promised a counselor, and his followers were anointed with the Holy Spirit. He promised joy, and our joy is full. The early church quickly learned that the risen Lord provided strength for daily living. John Knox said the primitive Christian community was not a memorial society with its eyes fastened on a departed master. It was a dynamic community created around a present and a living Lord. The disciples didn't know how he came to them 
through locked doors and from beyond death. But there he was, alive in their own experience, just as Christ comes to us today, out of eternity, out of mystery. I've always loved that closing closing passage in Schweitzer's quest for the historical Jesus. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name. As of old, by the lakeside, he came to those men who knew him not. He speaks the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill in our time. He commands, and those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils and conflicts and sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in, his, in their own experience who he is. We will never completely understand the resurrection. It's too marvelous, too mysterious for human clarity. But what matters is not the method of his coming, but the meaning of his resurrection. The early church required two things of the followers of Christ. One, that they believe the resurrection. And two, that they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's no different today. To follow Christ is to believe that he lives in our world and to commit ourselves to his will and his way. The book of Hebrews put it clearly. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, make you perfect. The risen Christ connected the lives of the disciples to life everlasting, and their joy increased. In Christ, they had entered upon a new age. Life was no longer terminal. The resurrection gave meaning and divine purpose to their lives. There's a simple story about a little boy riding a train for the first time. At one point, the train plunged into a tunnel, and suddenly everything was engulfed in darkness. And when they cleared the tunnel and daylight returned, the five-year-old gasped with surprise, and he said, Mama, it's tomorrow, today. That's exactly what the disciples felt after the resurrection. Jesus had said the kingdom of God is at hand, and now they knew the future had arrived. Heaven and earth had come together. The new age in Christ is present. Here and now, it is tomorrow, today. And there's one more thing. 
the abundant life in Christ is so vital and so continuous that it cannot be completed, certainly not here. Even the most saintly among us, especially the most saintly among us, will find this life unfinished. Dr. David Livingston, the Scottish medical missionary, became a noted explorer, opening the dark continent to the world. He discovered the Zambezi River, the Victoria Falls, Lake Tanganyika. But in many ways, he was a failure. His aim was to convert the African continent, to stop the slave trade, to find the source of the Nile. George Seaver, Livingston's biographer, wrote, When one closely looks into his life, there is one reflection which presses upon the mind with increasingly disturbing view, that life promises more than it fulfills, that it suggests a good which it is unable to impart. The pages of history and biography are like are blurred with the record of lost causes, quenched enthusiasm, unrealized ideals, and frustrated hopes. Oh, that's true. So true. The abundant life cannot finish here. Every meaningful life is an unfinished symphony. The Apostle Paul, in prison at Rome, with his great missionary enterprise far from being done, must have felt the frustration of the incomplete. But Paul knew the risen Christ, and he knew there was something more. And he said, if it is for this life only that Christ has given us hope, then we are of all men most miserable. But in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. Yes. And because he lives, we shall live also. And the incomplete shall be finished. And the imperfect shall be made whole. For only God can finish. But, oh, God finishes magnificently. And so we sing triumphantly, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. In Christ there is no anxiety, there is no fear, only the increase of peace and joy. John Henry Newman's beautiful benediction is a summary of that Christian faith. He said, O Lord, support us all the day long until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. And then, in your mercy, grant us a safe lodging, a holy rest,
a peace at last through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was true of the first disciples. Let it be true of us as well. More than they could possibly understand. Increasingly. Wondrously. The disciples were glad. When they saw the Lord. In his name. Amen. May we bow our heads for a moment. Almighty Father, by your grace, you have given us the joy of celebrating the resurrection of your Son. Give us also the joy of serving others in your name. And then at last, bring us to the fullness of eternal joy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.